In today's world, technology is everywhere. From the entertainment we consume, to the content we create, and the data that we distribute. Here at The Edge, we explore how the discoveries of today and the innovations of tomorrow shape and evolve the way we go about our everyday lives. Let's dream a world where your imagination is your only limitation. Let's open the curtain, peer into the future, and see what's waiting for us. Are you ready? Welcome, everyone, to The Edge, a TMG Core production. I'm Drew Knoll. And I'm Brad Furnish. And today we have a special guest with us, a close friend of TMG Core, Mr. Mark Nusha. Uh, Mark is a noted game developer, online community builder, entrepreneur, former deputy director of the Game Lab at SMU Guildhall. He has shipped more than 70 titles commercially in the video game industry, generating billions of dollars in revenue. Mark is currently president of Abacus 3, which specializes in esports experiences through sponsorship, events, arena builds, and curriculum with the goals of sustainability and growth for their clients. Mark, thanks so much for being on this morning. Uh, Drew, Brad, great, uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Mark, one of the things that we ask all of our guests on the show is uh, a bit of an icebreaker. If you could just briefly describe uh, an unexpected event in your career, whether that's a, a positive event or, you know, more of what we call a, a character building moment, um, doesn't have to be totally in depth or, you know, real in depth, just kind of a, a little nugget, if you will, for, for our listeners. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, the first thing that comes to mind, there's a lot, but um, I'd say towards the latter half, of my game development career, uh, got asked to guest lecture at um, SMU. And I went up there and I just was thinking, hey, you know, I'm just gonna talk to the kids and see how this goes. And talking to students afterwards um, literally changed uh, trajectory of my career. Um, I was like, I could really get into this. I could really start teaching. I would really love it, really enjoy it. So it was unintended consequence and then just totally changed the direction of, of where I was going with my life. Uh, that's, that's really cool. What, if, if you could, uh, what was it about that experience that, um, that really impacted you in such a way that you know, completely altered the course of your career? Yeah, I think, um, I just think it was, we're all very passionate in game development, but I think to see passion in students in a way I had not seen um, really touched me uh, deeply. And, yeah. I, and not just the passion, but just the eagerness to learn and just like literally sucking as much information out of your head like a sponge <laughs> that they possibly couldn't <laughs> it, it not egotistically said at all it was just like wow you have great conversations and great learn moments in your career and and while you're you know on the creative side building games but this was this was different um and they weren't looking at you like a fanboy i mean sometimes that happens or a fangirl um but this was really just a keen keen knowledge to learn and get better at their craft um which like i said you see in the professional world but this was just very inspiring very invigorating to yeah. give back to that um and even in those brief moments that lasted post the lecture just talking to students for about you know what was an hour but went by for me like five minutes a time each one of those just reinvigorated me um, and I wasn't losing passion. It was nothing like that. It was just like, wow, I could really have an impact 
um, in people's lives. That's, that's very different from what I've done in the past. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds cool. Um, and I, it's interesting you, you say that it, it, you, it, it wasn't like your passion was waning. It's no. just, you, you, you had a, a passion directed in a different space and, um, and, and it was, uh, yeah, I, I it's interesting because I think we all have those moments in our, in our lives, right. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, uh, you know, and I, it can be any litany of things that, that provide that spark, you yeah. know, whether, you know, in a different direction for us. And, you know, I, I, I think, and I'm by no means want to make this about me, but you know, my career is a pretty hard, you know, like if, you, if you just go look at my LinkedIn alone, right. I, I've had some hard lefts in my career from working as a, youth pastor a long time ago to mental health as a, you know, licensed mm-hmm. professional counselor. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a sales executive in a tech startup company. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, but like you said, it's those passion points that touch you and, and something, you know, pulls you. So that's, that's, that's really cool that you had that experience and, and more so that you followed through with it. Cause I think a lot of people have those experiences and it's like, Nope, Nope, that's not my lane. That's not, you know, I know this over here and I'm going to stay here because it's comfortable. Yeah. But it sounds like you kind of got out of the box and really started taking your career in different directions because of that experience. Oh, for sure. And I, you know, I don't want to say it's a pay it forward thing, but it almost feels like it because you think all those people that had a profound impact in your life at some point in your career, and I still do, like I have mentors around me constantly. And then I think to be a mentor to others, um, I think just rounds you out. It just makes you a much better person. And no matter what you're doing, I don't want to get preachy here, but you can always take all those life lessons. And especially when you're in those relationships, just apply it, right? You know, whether you come from youth pastor or, you know, psychology or counseling or whatever the case may be, those can just profoundly make you better, I think, um, in your career, you know, and even at home. So, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I mean, I, I agree, you know, for me, it's one of those fun things where, you know, from a psychology perspective, a lot of people like to stay in their comfort zone, you know, and like you have to push out and, you know, that's the only way that you grow and kind of go from there. But to hit on some of that, I don't know a whole lot about the gaming development process. So you can educate me about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the thing I always say, and it is, and you, even you guys doing what you do at team, it's very much a team sport. Um, you know, and you're, you're working with so many different people on so many facets of a game. So there's, you know, just at a very high level for people to understand it, you have programming, you have design, uh, you have art, and then you have like production management that, that sits in and around it. And I, I'm not saying it's all that way, but I'd say the majority of game development is like that. So, you know, you'll hear me say it's a very passionate thing. Um, and passion is great. And then, you know, passion can be negative as well. You can find yourself lost in it for long periods of time. Um, so you find, you know, yourself getting out of balance, but, um, you know, it is a business at the end of the day. Um, so the one thing that rubs there in a good way is you have, um, budgets and, um, schedules and timelines, um, in some of these projects. Um, are are pretty heavily invested. You know, some run a hundred million to two hundred million dollar projects, just like film or more, um, and they run the course of a year or two or longer in some cases. Um, and then there's shorter ones and everything in between. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a rub between that creative process and creative decisions. 
versus you have to be mindful of, of budgets and schedules and things like that. And the end of the day, everybody wants to make something high, high, high quality. Um, and at the end of the day, you're thinking of that user and, and affecting them in a very profound way. Um, so all to be said, um, it's a team sport. Um, there's a lot of great technical aspects and hardware changing, and you're always pushing the envelope. And I think that's what makes it so interesting and fascinating is it, for most of us, I would say, I don't want to speak for all of us, but most of us, it's, it's, it's always changing to some degree. Um, and you're always pushing the envelope. So it's, it's not static. Um, and it's ever evolving. Um, and, you know, we, we do a process in it, not, not to make a, a process driven um, thing, but it's, you know, a lot of us use agile development methodologies. Um, and I could speak a lot on a lot of these different things, but um, agile for people that don't know what that is, you're, you're always iterating within milestones and you're always iterating to get better from milestone to milestone to milestone. And really at its heart is, you know, fail, fail fast, as we say, learn from it. Um, and then use what's working and, and learn from that that's not. Um, and you, that will change uh, continually over whether your project six months, a year, two years, five years. Um, but I, I love that. Um, and I'd say all of us, all of us in game dev, um, we either found it or it found us and don't know what we would be doing um, if we weren't <laughs> doing game development. <laughs> So to that end, how did you get into it, Mark? I know uh, if, from some of our conversation, I mean, you, you started out in California, right? Yeah, so and I'm born and raised in California. Um, okay. My heart's there still, but I love Texas. And now I, you know, <laughs> got different passions out here in Texas. But um, from my background was um, electrical engineering business. And coming out of college, I was like, you know, I don't like, I'm not going to fake it. Like I, I didn't know what I was going to do with all that. So like you got business <laughs> entrepreneur and EE and computer science background and a lot of math. And I, yeah, it's an interesting question. So when I first came out, I actually was working, um, doing fabrication, anodizing, um, and trying to find different techniques way back when, how to do like color anodize and all these different things. And it was awesome, um, yeah. but not very fulfilling. And um, <laughs> so I never saw myself as running like a warehouse and, you know, people doing anodizing and all these kind of interesting projects, but uh, not my thing. And I was a heavy gamer and uh, my friends that knew me knew like I was getting a little stale in that. Um, or not fulfilled. I wouldn't say stale, not fulfilled. And there was a little developer, um, game developer, not far from where I was. And I had good management skills um, and creativity, decent technical chops. And then um, this small little developer, gosh, wasn't, you know, half hour from where I was working was like, you should come, you should go interview there. And I didn't know anything about game development. I knew nothing about <laughs> building games. I just knew I loved games. And um, so to date myself, this was like late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, the game development was just, it was a lot like esports now. It's like the wild, wild west. So I went there, 
And I started talking about these things I was doing more on like a scientific chemical background for like what I was doing in anodizing and um, uh, fabrication. And there was creativity of that and there was similar processes. And so the owners that I was talking to, I found myself talking about more about that than game development, my passion for games, even though they got that from me quickly. And it was that my prior experience that um, brought me in and they needed someone to uh, manage their projects, um, guide their projects and deliver them on time and on budget, which is always the thing and high quality. Everybody wants everything. (laughs) And that's, I mean, it was very, very random how I got into it. I'm very fortunate, very blessed actually that that happened. Wasn't planned. I could tell you clearly that wasn't planned. Um, and then I, I got into it and I never looked back. Um, and it, 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 you know, a lot of emotion behind what I'll say next. It, it changed me, um, immensely, um, in the sense that it was fulfilling on so many levels to work with people, um, that are just brilliant. Um, and then to create things just out of your head and then deliver them um, and then uh, reach a lot of people that you would never anticipate reaching millions of people uh, through your products. Um, yeah. I mean, I could talk all day, but I mean, I got like goose chills right now talking about it. Like, and that was a long time ago, um, but still that same drive, that same passion um, and how the industry's evolved and changed so much. Um, gosh, it doesn't even look the same as that era I was talking about, whereas like garage band time, whereas four or five of us building these crazy games. Um, but it it's it's still there, and now there's like different challenges, new challenges um in and around gaming, in and around esports, uh the way we consume it, the way we watch it. Um is is ever ever evolving and ever changing so but anyways yeah long-winded that's that's how i got there no that's great and i'm interested in and we don't have to get like super major in the weeds um but just kind of what that uh, you kind of outline there's there's programming and there's production and all of that that goes into it but if you could and and i don't know if you can from you know an nda perspective or or whatever but if you like from the kernel seed of an idea of a game and maybe you could use a specific game that you developed to help from a context standpoint, but somebody has an idea for a game. How do you go from that to now I'm playing it on whatever platform, whether it's my Sega Genesis or my N64 or my PS4 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'd say it's a lot different now than it was then. Um, and have, you know, done everything in between, um, so to speak. So I would, you know, the way I explained it um, to a lot of people, we were, um, I would say late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, we were, we were creating genres that had not been exposed yet. Um, The concept of first person shooter to unite all these common terms we have today no one knew what that was, um, to be honest with you. So, so there was a lot more freedom and flexibility of 
uh, experimenting and really based around different types of game experiences um, than today. So I'm going to kind of explain it both ways. Back then, it was like, wow, haven't seen that before. Um, and very little focus testing or user testing back then. It was very instinctive, very uh, gut design, um, both from marketing sales standpoint to the creative standpoint. I won't say that was everywhere, but that was in a lot of places, a lot of big places, you know, Sony, Sega, you name it, Nintendo. We were all very experimental. Um, so you, as long as you showed you know, kind of the development of an idea. You didn't have to really show proof of concepts or prototypes like you, no one's going to do anything now without actually kind of feeling it, touching it, seeing it, right? Um, and that that was kind of the Wild West then. Now, you know, we have a lot of franchises. We have a lot of investment. Um, you see a lot of sequels, um, at least on the on the PC and the console side. I would say mobile still feels a lot like what I was describing in the past, where you can try and experiment with new and different things on mobile. You still can on the other platforms, um, but I would say, candidly, it's probably a little harder. So original IP um, now, um, maybe character development, maybe different environments, things we haven't seen. Um, you know, that excites me. Uh, you see a little less of it because I, you know, obviously the so much large money is invested in this stuff now and expectation to deliver is, you know, you want to pull the risk out of that. I get it. Um, so now it's, you know, you got to show, you got to show a prototype if you're doing something new. Um, you even have to show a prototype if you're showing the, the next sequel of, you know, whatever it may be that you all play in now. Um, but there's a process to it. Um, and it's it's more scientific than you would think. Um, you gotta you gotta you know show that you can over if you're doing something new that the technical challenges are are addressed um, because people don't want to invest in new tech and a new IP. And I'm talking primarily around new ideas and new IP even today's climate. Um, so you you want to minimize that risk. You want um, whether you're doing it for a publisher and you're investing yourself or have large investment in these things, you need to prove that out um, for success. And then I would say on top of that, um, as you're developing and during development, when it's appropriate, user research, um, not for everybody, for a lot of companies is becoming part of the process. Um, so you're eliminating the risk um, involved or you know, user research is giving you information of how your design is not working as intended is the best way to describe it. Um, not that it's telling you how to design, it's just telling you where your design um, can be improved, is working, or or needs improvement. So, you know, like I, like I said, you know, earlier, I think in the past it was, you know, easy to throw more things at the wall and see what sticks um, versus now where, you know, it's it's a highly evolved industry with a lot of money and and great expectations to you know, under promise over deliver. And right. um, it's, it's a little bit harder now, I would say. Development's easier yeah. as far as all the tools and technology we have. Um, because before, it was, um, it was not as robust, and you would have to create quite a bit of technology. Um, where now, um, I won't say it's easy on developers, but I would say it's easier. 
um, because there's, you have so much at your disposal. Yeah, yeah. To that point, Mark, is there, I know you said you were working specifically on genres at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously there's a process and you're just throwing some stuff out there and mm -hmm. seeing what stuck. Was there a particular genre that you enjoyed developing more for, or like got more excited about? Yeah. You know, that passion that you mentioned? I, what, it's going to sound weird. What I, what I enjoyed developing for or creating might not necessarily be what I enjoy playing. Um, and at other times, what I enjoy playing is, is, is what I enjoy developing. At the time, I was coming, arcades were, very, were still very big, but they were coming into the home through console. So we were trying to enhance the experience of what everybody was used to dropping coins into is now you got to really, you got to develop a little bit different as you go to homes and everybody's just kind of translating arcade machines to the home. Um, but at the time, fighting games um, were really big. They were super big, enjoyed playing them, um, still enjoy playing them. Um, and I grew up on, you know, in the arcades as a kid. And so to see some of the fighting games come together um, was awesome. And so one of the first, the biggest games, whether people know it or not, it was a big game for me because back then it did, it was the first game that sold a million units for me, which back then was large. And so we did this game called Eternal Champions and, you know, Mortal Kombat had just, you know, was really the thing um, back then. Um, and so was Street Fighter. And so Sega came, uh, we were a developer for Sega, we were a division of Sega, and they're like, yeah, we're going to go beat Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. And I, you know, that's, I, I don't even know the analogy to give you guys. It's just crazy. It's like being last in the NFL one year and they're like, go beat the Patriots next year or something. You're like, sure. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to, you think you can. And we, you know, we gave it a good shot. Um, uh, it was, you know, by today's standards, it's it's nothing as far as like violence or anything. And I'm not condoning violence, but back then for what we were doing and Mortal Kombat was was pretty violent for its time. Um, and we had we had some things over kills and things of that nature. And, you know, we ended up on the Senate floor before it was released because everybody's losing their minds on, you know, that's so violent. It was cartoony, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I always say, you know any PR is good PR. And it was actually, and you know, the game, the game still has somewhat of a falling once in a while, I'll get a call and they're like, Hey, we want to do an interview on eternal chair. I'm almost like, what, what, what was eternal champ? <laughs> it was so long ago, but to your point, I, you know, I really enjoyed making that game. And then you also really appreciate not from a user, just how much goes into it. Um, how much goes into uh, we were very limited on uh, memories, so like animations of the characters were so reduced. And this may not be exciting for people out there, but I know on the development side, you know, we had to get super creative on on our memory use, um, and then backgrounds, animations, um, you know, and everything else that goes into a game, sound effects, blah blah blah. But you know, it I I really enjoyed it. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, I made a lot of sports games, um, and I am a sports fan, but I'm not the biggest fan of playing sports games. <laughs> but I really, you know, I did like I did like making them. Um, you know, we got to work with some 
great license NFL MLB um, and did a lot of games um, in that genre. Uh, so yeah. And then did some basketball games on some, you know, handheld devices and things like that. Now I, I really like making those games and I really enjoyed, you know, meeting different athletes, celebrities in that space. Um, and that was awesome. Um, but again, I like playing a lot of different games. Sports games is not my funnest thing to play, um, but I like making them. So it's it's really kind of a juxtaposition. But that, you know, anything you make, you want to learn the the competition and you want to be better than. So you start playing those games, I would say, more as a job. And a lot of people will tell you that, that, you know, when you make games, you're, you're playing your own game and you're playing the competition. I'm I'm a big fan of know your competition better than your own game. Um, so you're not repeating things or repeating bad things, or maybe you want to emulate good things, but you want to make it better then. Um, and that's why I say that. So I had to play just about every sporting game on the planet. Um, but not necessarily what I would play in my spare time. <laughs> gotcha. No, that makes sense. How, how did you go? I'm just curious. Cause I, and having no context or understanding from that that piece of it, it, it I, I like it, or I, I think in my head is it, is it one of those things where as you were once you got established as a developer and 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 I and I know you went through a your career, um, were you getting game ideas pitched at you like in in the sense of like you know book publishers or record labels getting demos or whatever? Did you get that? And and if so, like. How did you go through going, well, this is, this is a really awesome idea. This is, we're going to just file this over here and hopefully nobody brings it up again. Or how did you go through that process? Yeah. So I've been on both sides of it. What I mean by that is you, you can be like an independent developer or a development studio within a large publisher. And you're basically, you're creating the content. Now at mm -hmm. publishing houses like Sony and Electronic Arts, Blizzard, um, Blizzard's more of a developer publisher, even though they've merged with Activision. So I've been on the publishing side. That's the way I will say it. And you're pitched, you're seeing prototypes, game designs. Um, at least we, this was a little while back, but all the time was taking a look at that. And then you've got to evaluate. I, I would say when you're in a position of decision-making like that, for me personally, um, that was a lot more intimidating, a lot more scary because it was kind of your butt on the line. Like you're the one that decided that we should go make this type of game. Right. And you have that, you have that ability a bit when you're making them as well. If you're part of like executive producer team and stuff like that, which I've been at, but when you're just, I'm going to go publish these types of games or we're going to go invest these types of games. And you're looking at a lot of new content. Um, it's, it's intimidating. Um, now they end up, you know, hopefully well, and other times I do not. Um, and there, even to this day, I'd say a little bit less on the, on the pitching new ideas, at least to the bigger publishers. Now, you know, like I said, there's other places like mobile and VR and AR and things like that, where they're, they're looking at a lot of different ideas. Um, but yeah, I've been in that. Um, and you're looking at so much and you're trying to glean out like what is, what is the next big thing, especially when you're going to invest in something new um, that's not sequel driven um, or franchise driven? 
Um, or you're looking at licenses being thrown at you and they're saying, hey, let's go make a game in around this license or let's apply this license to this type of genre. Um, yeah, it's, I've been, I, I would say if you look at, if I look at my career, I'd probably say 80, 80, 85% was development. Um, 10 to 15% of my job, my part of my career was evaluate product, invest in product, um, go publish product. Um, but I, I, I really did that more of a, as a learn, um, because I wanted to learn the industry much more broader, um, because I took that type of learning mentality when I, you know, started my own studios, um, to know, you know, how does the publisher think, how do they look at product? Um, not just through a developer's eyes, but through the publishing side. So when I, I did that, it's more the attitude I have from my whole life is when I go, you know, nothing's a job to me. It's all like career moves. Um, so I just looked at it as part of the educational process uh, when I did that. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. Did you, was it more of a, a gut thing or did you have a process that you used to evaluate or, or and maybe you could speak to a broader, if there is some sort of an industry standard or, or consistent processes that you know of, um, you know, that, that people use and, and is there technology that's coming to play in part of that process of how they evaluate, like they were pitched this idea we're going to do that because we think it's a good idea because. Yeah. So it's, it's evolved. I mean, there's lots of ways to evaluate product um, prior or even like now, like if you're trying a new feature um, in a, in, I would say more of the big franchises, you know, there's ways to test that before it goes out. You can test it way before you get to a closed beta or anything like that. And, I won't say there's a one size fit all, but people do really good jobs on, on user research, um, product placement where it fits, competitive landscape, which are typical things that um, most businesses do, no matter if you're gaming or not, right? Um, and so I would say the more highly evolved, um, and I, I don't mean just like intellectually, I mean, just business-wise evolved where they've start, we've started to adopt so many of the practices that were already there in other industries and we've just adopted them in. So, you know, the gut instinct stuff is, I think, gone by the wayside, in my opinion. Um, we still, there's a lot of people that design that way where they think, you know, they know the users, they know a better kind of thing, but I'd say most companies like to test that. Um, and it's all about risk management, right? Like I was just going to say, yeah, you need to have something to back yourself up if yeah. you make a decision. To <laughs> well, or you'll come up with an idea or, you know, even a new game and they'll, they'll point out possibly, you know, and you want people to poke holes in it and they'll be like, well, that, that didn't work in this game. Or, you know, they try, you try to relate things. It's not all apples to apples, but when you can, like you said, you substantiate it or, you're disproving it, right? So I would say it's a lot more scientific. Everybody's got, you know, similar methodologies, but like I said, it's, it's what they're confident with um, using. So again, that's why I think we've seen ourselves evolve towards, you know, a lot of like what the movie industry's done, which is, you know, sequel hits driven, drives the industry, um, but there's places to experiment. Sure. What a um, and I, I think, and I don't want to spend our whole time on game development, yeah, but 
Uh, I, I'm curious from a psychological standpoint, you and I have had some offline conversations uh-huh. around this and I, 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 it just interests me. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a timely as well as kind of an age old topic of addiction around games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and obviously, and, and there's a fine line and a, you know, probably a gray line there of in any product that you develop, whether it's a game or, you know, anything else, a car or whatever, you want to build that brand affinity, right? So you want people to constantly use your product and, you know, and, 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 whenever you put out a new one, they're, they're loyal to your brand. So they're going to buy the new thing you put out. I think from, you know, I, I think Brad and I are probably would, we would be casual gamers probably at best. So, you know, we probably don't fit in that mold of people that are, you know, uh, well, I hope I don't, you know, of, of an addict. <laughs> right. Um, and even using that word, there's a stigma around that, right. right of being in a, a gaming addict. But it, it it exists, right? And even so, to the point where now, addiction, you know, a sub a sub diagnosis in the DSM five is is gaming, yeah. right? To you know, so um, it, it's a thing. You know, it's not something we can ignore. It, and I'm not trying to uh, by no means rail on on gaming because it's an addictive thing. I mean, everything's addictive from your Cheetos to your Dr Pepper to right. Call of Duty, right? And it's a personal you know responsibility thing. But how? I'm curious, do gamers, and, and this has probably evolved as well, do, do you design that addiction into the game? And then, and how so, and and obviously there's a lot of ethical things to to, to tie in there. Like, how does, from your perspective, how, yeah. how does that play in the space? So, I'd say in the, early in my career, I never thought about it. I'll be real candid with you. And I don't think many of us thought about it. Um, And that's being extremely honest. And I think most people, um, you know, especially developers, you know, who's been around as long as me, (laughs) um, I would say that's probably one thing um, that's probably consistent is we, we didn't think of that. Um, and obviously coming from a different era back then. However, I would say it's not like, oh, we're looking for, you know, how to fit addiction in and whatever term you want to use. I would say by nature, great game design can be addictive. So you get into this, you know, and I, I've taught ethics around gaming and we always, we always talk about this and, um, you know, my attitude towards it is you gotta, you gotta kind of know where you fit in it and how you're going to respond to it. Now, do we go out and maliciously try to addict people? I would hope not do some, I'm sure they do. And, you know, that can drive revenue to a point. Now I would still argue that's not great game design. Um, if the sole motivation is to unintentionally or intentionally addict people just so they're, you know, like going to do loot boxes, like it's some sort of lottery hit, right? Like there are, there are, um, there are some games that, that do those things. Now, are they, can they last stick around? Maybe, but I would say probably not. Um, the other side of this coin is, you know, what, if you want to like limit people's behavior, 
Um, I don't know if good game design can limit people's play, so to speak. I mean, parents can, you can, uh, as far as their children. And then you get into this whole deep conversation of, you know, social responsibility. And do we as developers have social responsibility? Um, I, we're very aware our games can be addictive. Um, I think there are addictive people. Um, and I think people can play these things in balance um, and self, you know, discipline. Um, right. Absolutely. I'm not, here's my whole thing in this. Sorry, I'm not trying to mealy mouth at all. I think, I think it is uh, where, where do you fit in it and what is your role in it and what responsibility do we have in it, right? And everybody's got kind of their own slant or bend on it. And that's really when these conversations come up, when we speak, especially developers or upcoming developers and we're training them, I'm, I'm more about like, where, how are you personally going to respond um, to someone that gets addicted to your game? So I'll make it very real um, with an anecdotal story. Now, I, I worked on, um, I, I ran development at Sony Online for a little while, not all of it, but I had EverQuest, EverQuest 2. Um, and some other MMOs um, that fell under my leadership. And, um, you know, I, we worked on those and, you know, I would get emails um, and they were asking us like, when is, when's the next, when's the up, next update or patch? And a lot of these people were like scheduling their vacations at work around the launch and you know i get that now but during in the heat of it at first i was like oh that's kind of cool they're trying to schedule <laughs> trying to schedule their vacation around time to play and you know then i was sat there for a minute literally in the recesses of my mind i was like wow this is interesting like this is very profound um for these for people playing and i get it because i game and play myself and you know i can get lost in it but then you start to think, you know, I'm not going to make a less qualitative game. I just, you got to realize that people kind of get addicted to your game. And, you know, people do things on, you know, giving out um, you know, money to certain foundations that help people and such. And, you know, if that's what you want to do and you have the fiduciary wherewithal as, you know, as a company, um, I think those things are admirable. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll say it this way to people that don't understand game design. Um, you know, we know the type of games you like to play and we, we know you as a user um, and we want to reward you and continually reward you for that thing you like to do. And I, I say that in the most positive way um, because we want you to play our games, right? And the, if you think about that, mental trigger it's the same thing as and i'm not equating gaming to any of this i'm just saying your body's going to re respond the same way to maybe a food you eat and other things that may be good for you or could be not good for you like you know alcohol in, in excess or whatever the case may be that or drugs or whatever people get um addicted to and again i'm not equating gaming to any of those i'm just saying your body your mind will react um, for something if you really enjoy it and you're continually getting rewarded 
you fall kind you know that's a dopamine it's a dopamine cycle. yeah it's yeah. a dopamine exactly. cycle exactly but again yeah. i you know i don't want to speak for the whole community but you know i think most people are are generally pretty good people as far as the industry is concerned and you know there's people that will could take advantage of that um to some degree but at the end of the day you need a very good game um to become addictive in my opinion. I mean, people don't get addicted to things they don't like. So. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where, you know, I'm sitting here thinking of it going, you know, yes, there's, there's responsibility of, you know, you can't maliciously go after people, you know, it's, it, it's that piece of it, but it puts game developers in in a tough spot because, you know, in order for the game to be mass adopted, it has to be enjoyable, yeah. you know, and, and people want to seek out, that pleasure. And so you can't, to your point, make a less quality game, but you know, at the same time, that's what's going on at, you know, Hershey's or Dr. Pepper, all these different places is, you know, they're developing new products that they want to hit that same pleasure experience for, you know, the user. So they actually buy more of it, consume more of it. And, you know, the, to me, the neat part about gaming is there's so many different games out there. You know, you mentioned that you like to play fighting games. Obviously, a lot of people like to play those games, you know, whereas some sports games, you know, not everybody picks up sports games. And even within sports games, you have people that are only going to go pick up Madden. You know, people aren't going to necessarily pick up Major League Baseball. And, you know, to that point, it's, you know, to me, we've all kind of been there as you find yourself playing playing a video game and you look up and it's two hours later and you're like, oh, crap, I didn't even realize that I've been yeah. playing this for two exactly. hours. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think that's where, in my opinion, you know, and you could speak way more to this than I could is, you know, a developer can be cognizant of, you know, if there's a certain level in a game, how long should that level take you? You know, what are some of the breakpoints to even give somebody pause or a break? But, you know, from an overall addiction perspective, you guys are in kind of a tough spot when you have to make a game that gets, you know, people wanting to play it. Yeah, I I, I think as you know, as if you're doing it out of malice or, you know, and if you have intentionality and that it's really hard to prove intentionality. Right. But like I said, I, most of the people I've been around and most of the great designers I've been around, you know, we're just, we're looking to entertain people. We're looking to bring people together now, especially with online uh, build communities. And I'm not dismissive of the addiction, but I, I, I see, I have seen in my career, extensively so many more positives through gaming than negatives now we can always improve and be mindful on the negatives and whatever those things are um but as for i've i've had so many people come to me like and it's the most humbling thing it's like your game changed me or playing within this community you know i didn't have a place to go um and this community brought me together and i'm i'm not deflecting at all i'm just giving i've had so many of those conversations and not just myself, people way more successful than I in the game and industry are, you're just constantly humbled by the profound impact you've had. Um, and then games, you know, games can be used for good as well. Um, not just entertainment, but educating. There's some games now like, um, well, there's the whole fold it process and other things that are um, solving medical problems. Now I, I, 
I bring that up primarily because, you know, when we go down the addiction road and we do need to be mindful of addiction, the other thing I'll always caveat it with is there are probably exponentially more positive. Now, I don't want to see anyone die or ruin themselves or relationships um, get destroyed um, because I've been in those conversations. Um, you know, there have been MMOs where, you know, People have said in internet cafes, not in this country and other countries and, you know, lost track of time and stopped eating, drinking and just played. And, you know, we've had some really, we've, we've heard of some bad things, right? Or someone's played so much, they've lost them, you know, a partner or a marriage or things of that nature. Now, I still, you know, we all got a role in this. Um, and then it's, it comes down to accountability and responsibility and things of those nature. Um, so when I, you know, when I'm in ethics and I'm teaching to students, it's more, we, I'm not telling people do this or do that. I'm just saying, reflect on the things you can control. And, you know, you're getting into an industry where this stuff is highly entertaining, highly evolved and highly, and can be addicting for some. And just, be aware that you're going into that space. And then again, like I said earlier, and it's repetitive is, is, is where are you in that? And are you, you know, maybe there's something you can do. Maybe there's someone, you know, that is addicted and you could help them. And, you know, I've, I've had students and I'll keep it very anonymous where, you know, they were very candid with me in college that, you know, they were playing far too much. Um, and I, I'd say as you develop games, you're probably playing not as much as you want because you're making games. But, you know, I've, I've run into that and we've had those conversations, um, you know, and I, I can be real. I can be very candid myself, even during college, you know, would play in the arcades quite a bit because that was my choice. And, you know, GPAs were one to one, you know, going down. well and i think too a lot of it it, just from my perspective and you know we've uh, like i brad and i both have younger kids i think part of why why gaming gets such a bad rap from the addiction standpoint is the culture that you're creating and not that the culture is a bad thing but that there is this entire culture around gaming and i i think a lot of people one, it's it's more higher profile, right? I mean, because I mean, the reality of it is there there are I would and I, this is massive speculation. So anybody that's listening to this, take that for what it is. But in my experience as a mental health professional with teenagers, I saw way more addictions to pornography, to food, to alcohol and drugs than I did with with addictions to, to video games and gaming, but those other addictions were much more white and I say accepted, but like the parents, like I would have kids that your parents that would bring me kids that, that had an eating addiction or, you know, a, a, an eating disorder. And they were concerned for their kid, no doubt, but it was like, okay, you know, Johnny's got, you know, an eating disorder. Let's work on that. They never blame the food. Right. They, yeah. they always, it was, it was Johnny's problem. It was our problem as a family. Right. We're going to work through this together. But when they would bring, you know, when I would have a kiddo come in and their parents would bring them to me for a gaming, dis, you know, addiction, it was, well, that, that, that dang video game is just making Johnny addicted. And I'm like, no guys, it's the same. Like the video game is the same as the food, as the drug, as the alcohol, to your point, it's all about personal responsibility. 
And I just, I find it interesting that, that, that gaming take get, takes it on the chin so much more. And maybe it's because it's newer, um, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, like McDonald's doesn't take it in the shorts because, you know, people are addicted to cheeseburgers and French fries, but there, you know, our country is so much more obese than it is addicted to video games. Yeah. Right. Um, so to your point, you know, I, I agree. It is a, it's a, it's at the end of the day, it is a personal responsibility thing for each individual. Um, and, and, you know, and especially with kids, it's, it's on, it's, 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 if my seven-year-old gets addicted to video games, that's my fault as his parent, not, not Activision or you know, Sony or EA. That was the tool by which I set a, a, a system in my home by which he was able to get addicted because I didn't monitor it enough. I didn't instill the discipline in him or myself enough to prevent it. Um, that's, that's my personal opinion and it's worth the two cents that it's not worth. Um, but you know, no, it's, um, it's, it's a really good point and something else you brought up, which, um, maybe you didn't mean it this way or not. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, there are so many people playing even just a title, um, millions of people, right? So you are going to be exposed or expose your product to lots and lots and lots of people and lots of people you'll never meet. And in that, I'm just saying you're getting a larger cross-section of not just this country, of, of the planet in, in, some, in some situations. However, um, and I really... I've never really said this out loud much, but probably to myself is, you know, people are getting exposed to games um, a lot younger. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot larger part of our, our lives um, than it, when it originally came out. And, and all I'm getting at is, you know, I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist and I'm always, you know, we'll get better from learning and we'll get better over time. And even during COVID we'll learn from this and get better. Um, it's just, that's the way my brain works. But in saying that, I think, you know, the kids that are playing now will be parents. Um, you know, kids that played way back are grandparents. And I think, you know, understanding it, going through it, you know, we're, we're, we're evolving and adapting um, as a user base. I, I hate to say it like that, but in that, I'm just saying, I think we'll be better armed as parents, um, better prepared as parents. Um, and some of us may have been addicted going through it and now we're parents. And so I just think from all that, it's, it's changing, you know, early on, you know, kids were playing games, but their parents or their grandparents had no clue to what they're doing. And that's still true today to some degree, but it's becoming less and less and less and less over time. So all I'm saying is, my hope is, you know, for people that, you know, and I hate they're in that situation where a child um, could be addicted to a game or games, you know, that we're, we're better equipped, um, you know, and more responsible um, in many, many ways. And I, I'm not talking as a yeah. developer, I'm actually talking as a parent. I've Absolutely. There's way more resources out there now than there, it, there is. And I'm not saying it's yeah. perfect. I'm not saying it's a panacea. You know, I'm... No. I can speak directly. You know, I had a I had a child that you know he's an adult now, but he was addicted, and you know I was game developer during that, and I had to pull all the games out of the house. And right, 
you know, I'll tell this story very, very briefly, but didn't you go design his own game after you pulled him all yeah, out of the house that's or something? The one. <laughs> and I, you know, yeah. and he's, he's not in the industry, but he's a, he's a programmer. And, you know, I was like all upset and pissed off as a dad, like, what are you playing? And it's like this little game he made himself. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. I, I so, got to give the kids some ingenuity there. But I mean, and you know, my kid, I was like, deep down, I was like, wow, way to go, son. But <laughs> my, my point in that story, you know, right or wrong, whether I did good or bad, or my wife and I did good or bad in that, it, you know, a lot of ingenuity and they're going to, he needed to get his whatever. So he made it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. For me, this is also an interesting thing too. And, and not that I'm passing judgment by any means, because obviously I have my, my young kids and I have my own household that has its good things and it's bad things that happen. But, you know, for people who want to put the blame on, on gaming, you know, and games and, you know, getting kids addicted or, you know, having those sorts of things. To me, it's funny to see how a lot of those same components that make a game enjoyable to play or, you know, hit that pleasure zone to where people could get addicted are now actually being leveraged in educational platforms. So, you know, we all, you know, Drew, I know you've seen them, you know, there's ABC mouse, there's these different educational tools that they're video game based. They have an educational component behind it. So to me, I kind of have, you know, you know, like I, I, laugh sometimes when people are like, oh, gaming is going to be the end of us. But here, my second grader, here's ABC Mouse, here's Lexia, here's this video game where you're getting rewarded for learning stuff. But I have no problem with you spending six hours on an iPad teaching yourself stuff, especially, you know, now when everybody's been in quarantine and staying at home. And, you know, we all realize that teachers are amazing, you know, people that need all the grace in the world when we get mad at them. You know, so to me, it's one of those where there's a little bit of, you know, people being hypocrites on times of, I hate gaming, gaming's addictive, but yet I'm going to use it to pose education. And to me, you know, Mark, you mentioned that there's so many positives around it and how many ways that gaming can be used for good that to me, I don't want to knock ABC Mouse. I don't want to knock any of these, these companies that have figured out a way to, to trigger a kid who might be struggling in a classroom to help them learn to counter, help them learn to read. You know, so I don't, I, I think a lot of these same positive things coming out of the game development are now moving into education. Absolutely. And um, I appreciate you bringing that up um, for a lot of reasons, but um, a lot of just human computer interaction, um, you know, especially in the gaming industry and other fields of software development, you know, we've, we've been playing with this for a long time now relatively speaking i mean it's a short time in human existence but um as far as uh user interfaces um guis all these things that are tried proven now and expected are being used in training education um i was fortunate enough to work on um a military i'm not a military person but i was on, involved in a project doing military uh simulated training um and we used all game tech um maybe not on the hardware side there was a rear projected dome it was amazing um and it was you know for stinger missile training 
and it was safe. Um, it was relatively accurate to the real world. Um, but again, you know, anything that they did in that was basically at its heart and soul was good game design. Um, and then obviously simulation, trying to replicate the best you can of what the real world is, which is, you know, a little different than gaming because we're it's escapism and you don't want to be exactly real. Otherwise you just be in the real world. Um, <laughs> for that experience <laughs> as crazy as that statement just sounded um, but but anyways my point is a lot of those now are tried and proven and and there as gaming gets more accepted it's being used more prevalent prevalently um and i you know there's lots of applications that i could go over from uh, medical uh training for surgeries um using gaming hardware um, to simulate some of that. Not all of it, but some of it. But I'm just saying it's translating into other areas. And it, it, at its heart, the only reason, I, in my opinion, is, is accepted because it works. Um, and it's getting better. But again, when people get into software and it's not anywhere near what they expect on their favorite game as far as just the pure interface of it, they'll, they'll set it down. Like it, They'll just almost laugh it off. And th that goes for just about any more serious part of gaming that's applied elsewhere. So to that point, you know, obviously the world that we're in and you were tied to SMU and, and have taught classes and you've made reference to that and, you know, some of the ethics and how the development goes, mm -hmm. but from where we're going from a broader educational perspective of knowing that you have some universities who are talking about, we're going full online in the fall to, you know, we're going to kind of create this hybrid in the classroom for part of it online for some of it, you know, all the way down to elementary schools. Do you see, you know, a bigger component for those developers and that kind of same gaming to kind of take over and help the education world? Or, you know, from your experience in the education world, are you seeing that, you know, sometimes we know that the people who are the powers that be are a little bit resistant to that change and, you know, are firm in their opinions that way. I, I think it comes down to more the the culture that exists on a specific university. Um, I think, you know, we talk about this offline. I don't want to say names, but like my mentor was a dean at, at a pretty uh, various business schools and adore him. Um, and I'm going to keep him anonymous. But we were just talking the other day that, you know, some of these bigger brands, household name universities were not geared up to go online. Um, and I would say some of the charm still long-term for, for some of these programs is, is not the online component. It's more that face-to-face -face mentoring, that working guidance, um, especially when you're doing like team projects and capstones and different things like that. You know, we're getting better, I think, universities aside at maybe bringing people together to work collaborative remotely. But I'd say some of these schools... You know, it's it's a hard pivot and some are pivoting quickly and some are not necessarily household names, but they are providing a great experience. And I, I really think that's it, though, is is the experience you can provide. But if you're trying to, like, sledgehammer this in quickly because of covid, uh, some of these schools aren't aren't built that way. Um, and, I, you know, I'll be candid. Some programs I've been involved with, the charm is, you know, the student to student interaction at a level you cannot replicate yet. Um, we might with technology, but um, I think Zoom meetings and things like this and some classes that are lecture-based can definitely work for that. But the collaborative process 
and those moments you can't capture that are just organic, um, it's hard um, to capture that. Um, I know with you guys and what you're doing, like, you know, when you're creating and developing something, you know, it's, it's a very interpersonal thing, some of these things, um, and they're not set in time and they're not set in stone. And I think, you know, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but that's hard to replicate. Um, and I think VR will get there someday. I don't think it's there yet as, as far as the total experience and really like, getting our heads and plugged into our heads, um, then, then I think it's easy to pivot at that point, which may or may not even happen in my lifetime. But um, culturally, um, and adaptability, you know, some schools are set in their ways and others are like, hey, let's try this. We don't care. Um, so it just depends is the, is the answer there and for me. And to me I, sorry, Drew, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, bro. So for me, you know, like, you mentioned charm and obviously there's a lot of folks who, who pick commuter schools. There's a lot of folks who go off to school who pick that, you know, campus, you know, it feels like home. I, I met a couple of these teachers, um, you know, which I don't think there's a way to, to replace that for those online. I don't think you can ever, you know, simulate going across country and, you know, learning more about yourself, but from a, an education perspective, since I took, you know, a few semesters, you know, completely online, I think it calls into, you know, or brings out or calls out, you know, the, the specific professors and how they, how they teach and how they interact. And ultimately, I think having to teach some sort of a hybrid online course, or if they had to have experience, is going to make their, their teaching skills better in the classroom. Cause we've all, you know, had that professor that stands up there in front of a projector and just drones on for an hour, hour and a half and you're asleep five minutes in and, or they just read their PowerPoints verbatim. Exactly. (laughs) You know, or it's like, great. Now I get to go read the book that I haven't picked up all semester to learn what I'm supposed to learn versus you have some professors where you don't necessarily need to pick up the book. It'd be advisable to pick up the book, you know, before you take the the exam or the final, but they are just so good at that interpersonal skills and those interactions of, you know, they could lecture for an hour and a half, but you don't feel like it's an hour and a half. So, you know, to me, this, this whole situation and having to move to online school can actually call out some things that might need to change in how teachers are trained or, you know, what's a great teacher or a great professor and what's not. hundred percent. I think regardless of medium, that's, that's the case, right? So, you know, for some, it's just a tool and they'll use it well. Um, for others, it might just accentuate or enhance the problem. You know, I'm not a big fan of, and by the way, I'm going to be really clear. I don't even consider myself an educator. I just, found myself there. Um, but I would say those that are accessible, those that make the experience as unique for the individual, even though they, you know, in some classes you can't scale like that, but you know, when you get to 40, 60, you know, it gets challenging. I think accessibility to an instructor, um, added value for someone that walks through the door. If you're not providing added value for that individual, you know, I don't care if you're on Zoom or you're in the classroom. If you're not providing that, you're useless, in my opinion. Um, and all of you have, all of us, all of us have had great instructors and all of us have had poor instructors. I agree. I think this place we're in on the short right now has just highlighted efficiencies and problems. Um, and even for individuals. So, 
someone told me, I don't know what metric, what university this was, but they were telling their professors for every one hour of online, they should be preparing 15 hours for one hour of time in the class. Now, whether that's right or wrong, and for some professors that freaked them out and others are probably like, yeah, I do that every day. Um, that's my point. That's my example. And I think it's a really valid point you bring up. It's still education is education. Um, but I think if you can create some interactivity, even with Zoom, rather than I'm just, you know, and I'm going at the mouth yammering right now myself, but, you know, creating that interactivity uh, between yourself and the student, I still think you can do that through any medium to some degree. Maybe not exactly how it is, what it was prior to COVID, um, but I still think you can create a, an added value, added experience, um, get the most out of that student that you can. And there's so many instructors out there like that. And there's bad instructors that don't care and just going through the motions. And this is going to accentuate that. Yeah, I'm curious to see, because I, I think that there's, whether it's something that's built into education curriculum moving, you know, educator education curriculum moving forward, or if a lot of these school districts and universities bake it into their next in-service session or whatever, I, I think there's definitely a, a, a need for training for educators on how to leverage and utilize. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm talking beyond and above like how to send out an invite for a Zoom call and mute people, but like how to dynamically utilize the curriculum uh, in some of these mediums, uh, you know, and especially I think at the university level, I, I would imagine it's probably more applicative there because I, I don't think from a developmental standpoint, we're really going to change the way that we educate at the elementary level. Brad, you know, from, from Jenny's experience, you may have a different perspective on that, but I think the way you educate a kindergartner is probably, I, I don't think we're going to heavily integrate and, and replace teacher didaction with, with technology. But I think at that level, it's more supplementary, right? To your point earlier, like the, the ABC mouses and things like that, I, I think you're going to see over the next 12 to 36 months, an explosion in technology based, whether it's supplemental or replacement technologies. Um, and because people are seeing the, the need for it and the value of it, and we've talked about it at nauseum between, you know, in our internal group of how I'm a pitiful first grade teacher, um, you know, as is my wife. I mean, my, my God bless her. She's a saint and she did as best she could, but she's not, she's a physician assistant. She's a pediatric person, not a teacher. Um, you know, and so I think that there's, you're going to see a lot of that come out of that and in hand with that, these teachers are going to have to, there's going to be this hybrid education that's necessary to teach them how to, you know, to utilize that technology and, and to your point, be a better, more dynamic educator because of it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, to your point, you know, it's hard to teach elementary, kindergarten, first grade, you know, there's so many things that have to be hands-on, you know, yeah, you can, absolutely. you can only replace so much of that or supplement so much of that. But I mean, yep. just think handwriting in general, you know, like teaching a kid to write, you know, I know that there's the whole debate on whether or not people still need to be able to write, and you know, whether or not we're teaching cursive in schools or stuff like that, you know, but, you know, having obviously recently been through it, you know, both of us, you know, I, I have a hard time teaching my kid how to write, 
you know, like I know how to write, I've written for, you know, many, many years now, but the actual, here's how you hold a pencil. And then, you know, here's some of this and like those, you know, early, early education, you know, professionals, teachers, they've been taught how to handle those things. You know, when you get to college, I mean, let's, let's face it, you know, you have your students who are very, very interactive and will be interactive and, you know, they, they know what their passion is and they know where it draws. And then you also have the people who you're lucky if they show up to class once a month and, you know, are just there having a good time and going to college for eight years that aren't doctors, (laughs) you know, so to to that point, it, it, to me, it's going to be interesting. And, you know, I can say that, you know, I've seen some elementary schools and even some high schools do fantastic jobs of how to create it and supplement it and really pivot on the fly. And then there's also been some that, that have struggled, but to your earlier point, Drew, like the teachers being able to use it, you know, like most educators, you know, we in the business world go, Oh, zoom WebEx teams. They're all the same kind of platform. It's just the nuances in, and it might take me a couple of times the first, you know, time or two that I need to hop on an external call where, you know, you don't use your same system, but for educators, they never have to have zoom meetings. They never have to have WebEx meetings. You know, it's, Hey, we all need to have a meeting. All right. Three thirty in the conference room. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, so to your point, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of those platforms and what tools come out to actually assist the teachers. Because I think, you know, there's been a lot of negative things of the situation we're in, but I think a few positive ones are, we all realize that most of us are not educators. And if we are somewhat capable of it, we don't want to do it. So, (laughs) How can we help those who who have chosen that profession? And, you know, for a long time, it's been a pretty thankless profession, which, you know, to me, it should bring back a lot of appreciation and some of the ways that they've gone out of their way to to treat, you know, our kids or, you know, just the youth in general, because that is the next generation. And, you know, it's to me, there's all good things to move forward out of it. But to Mark's point earlier, it's called out some some gaps that we can address that might've been overlooked and you know, might've been problems 20, 30 years ago from an education perspective, but we just went, ah, you know, things are working great. You know, not a big deal. Yeah. I, the, the elementary part is a little bit more challenging. I think, um, assume technology can create better experiences remotely, whatever that means, um, be able to read people when you're looking at, you know, I do it a lot where we're in a meeting and eight, 12 people have been on a meeting. It's very hard to identify responses to what I'm saying or if I'm presenting something to a group, you know, and but we're more skilled, more adept, right? Than let's say you guys with your kids at home. Um, I that's that's probably the most challenging area. And then, you know, obviously parents, most parents aren't formally trained to be educators, and then some. I have some friends where they were paying quite a bit of money for even elementary education. And now they're being like, and here, go teach your kids and pay this tuition fee. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. You know, and, and, and if forget us for a minute, if you think about the kids, the social dynamics, the interaction, you know, etiquette inside of a classroom, you know, that's where I see the real, challenges for let's just say you know who knows how long we're going to be in this state and if this goes through fall and further let's say worst case scenario you know those i think they at that level that's probably the hardest thing um i think 
disseminating information or educating your children to some degree can get better. But you know, I, in my opinion, it's going to be really hard to play replace those developmental skills as it's group setting stuff, you know, and it's kind of where my heart yeah. goes out, at least for these, these kids now. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I had a, a neighbor that's a good friend with my son that just had a birthday and she's going to go into second or third grade. And, you know, from across the street, like, Hey, your birthday's coming up. What do you want for your birthday? And the response was, I just want to go to school and play with my friends. Yeah. Like imagine that, you know, like seven, eight, nine year old, all of a sudden going instead of, Hey, I want this toy or a scooter or a bike. It's, I just want to go to school so I can see my friends. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, so, so we pivot, you know, the Abacus three side of me that does, you know, esports, community building, all these different things where, you know, we develop all kinds of things within esports, but you know, the, the physical events going to online events and you're seeing a lot of that, but you know, oddly people are reaching out, not, through event companies I partner with and work with that are, that are huge, you know, people are missing, adults are missing that, that a funeral, a wedding, um, that is more tactile face-to-face social interaction. And, you know, for me personally, working on advanced technologies as it relates to blurring the line between um, virtual audiences and physical audiences i think this is propelling us um i don't know if it'll sustain the propulsion um but it's really identified that for some of us that were thinking about this stuff way before covid as far as bringing virtual to experience something in their house that they couldn't experience in a different in, in any other way but if you someday, you know, I think there's something to be said in a demand or a need for I can't get to that really good friend's wedding or I can't get to that really good friend that passed. Um, and if we can make that somehow meaningful um, through technology, I think that's brilliant. Um, we just we just can't pivot fast enough right now for the demand. Um, right. But those that are have some of these things just baby stepping people into that space are doing very, very well right now. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not a great place we're in, but we're learning so much. And for some of us, it's really advocating for possibly some technological solves. Um, if that makes sense, I just don't think the technology is as advanced to, give the experience that I was describing that I can feel the same way physically at a space that I would sitting in my house remotely. I think that's, that's a big, that's a big chasm where we're going to cross it someday, but we're, we're just starting, just starting. Yeah. I, I had two thoughts and I'd, I'd love if, if you could, and if you can do this, you're even more brilliant than I think you already are. If you could dovetail this into what you're doing in virtual arenas and whatnot of, so I, so my wife, like I said, is a pediatric PA and she, about six months, nine months ago, she had a, a kiddo, a, a 10 or 11 year old dude um, that got diagnosed with uh, leukemia and he had to be in the hospital for a long stretch of time um, for treatment and whatnot. and the school that he went to here locally, they had a program where he essentially had a, a robot 
with an iPad hooked up to it and speakers and that kind of thing uh, to where he could actually, and then he had a laptop at the hospital and was able to literally go to his classes um, with his, you know, I, I think somebody locally was controlling the movement of it, you know, so obviously he didn't run into people and those kinds of things, but like the, he was actually able to attend class and it showed him, you know, with the webcam and that kind of thing. Now, obviously it's not from a tactile standpoint. I mean, he, you know, he, he's not feeling and, and sensing the class from a, you know, a tactile standpoint, but he was at least getting the, the visual and the audible pieces of it. Um, and then you couple that with, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a habitual consumer of podcasts and um, Rogan interviewed uh, Elon Musk a couple of weeks ago. And I was just recently listening to that. And Musk was talking about, for the love of me, uh, the neural network thing that he is either he specifically is working on, or he's a part of the development. So we're literally like, it's this plate that will go into your, you know, this chip that goes into your brain and like wires actually tie into centers in the brain to where, you could have that kind of virtual experience and it's actually telling your, it's sending the same signals to your brain um, that, you know, like if you were to reach out and touch me on the shoulder virtually, it's actually telling my brain, Hey, Mark just reached out and touched you on the shoulder and my nerves would sense it because yeah. it's what it's telling. And I don't understand any of that because I'm not nearly intelligent enough, but um, I'm curious in terms of, you know, some of the virtual stuff that you guys are working on, where does that play and where does the technology, what's the gap? Where do we bridge to get even close to something like yeah, that? Yeah, you. that touches on a lot of things. The, you know, I've, again, I've worked on VR and I've worked on AR projects. I mean, for VR, you know, it's a little less than 1.0 on VR relative to that where you're basically eliminating as much peripherals hardware um, so you can experience it, you know, where either you're just, tr you know, tapping direct drive into your neural network. Um, now, again, back to our earlier conversation, that can be used for good and that can be used for bad. Um, and I'm not right. saying it's bad to do that, um, but I think that's truly VR, what, what was just described, where your your sensory perceptions you know all five are tapped into i think ultimately that our kids will probably see that or experience that or maybe you guys will or i will who knows but i think that's down the road and i think that truly is virtual reality um, yeah so right now we're at two senses if i i mean widespread so, right i mean we can get audible and visually exactly. at a widespread exactly right? and to be very tangible i can't get into some of the proprietary tech that i'm working on too sure. but i'll say it this way the approach is audio and visual and to work with what most people have in their hands already which is either mobile 2d screens things of that nature doing that well on the short will hit the masses. Um, right. And given them, like I said, it's always about giving them an experience they normally could not have, have got. But we're trying to work more, and I'll give you more of the approach on design, work with what people have, but they can experience in a way they haven't before, right? And so yeah. you're absolutely right. That says it very well. It's really two, it's, it's, it's visual and it's audio. Um, and I'll be clear, even in like eSports, it's so 1.0, that can be, ex 
there's so much potential and opportunity there right now. And even for traditional sports or Broadway plays, if you will, whatever, um, that that can be explored um, and exploited in a good way, actually, um, to bridge the audience at home. Again, like I always say, to maybe the physical. And all of it can be staged virtually, too. It doesn't need to be just physical. But you're right. It's it's mostly, and you can do some tactile stuff with virtual reality, but it's mainly touching, picking up virtual objects in a three-dimensional space, things like that, which has, but yeah. you don't feel it. It's very, the immersion gets broken because you can't really, you can give some feedback, but not the same dexterity that you have picking up any object, but we're getting better there. So I think the next would be, right. the third would be probably the tactile dexterity, which we're getting there. And that's through like haptic sensors and those exactly. kinds of things is how that gets accomplished. Yep, okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. That's the next one that starts to be, is getting better and explored with different peripherals. So. Right. Cause I think that's the challenge in VR, right. Is that, you know, cause right now, and I'm, I'm mildly ignorant to this, you know, there's, there's a few different widely accepted from an industry standard uh, point of view of headsets and uh, controls, right? To where you can you, you can manipulate those things. But to your point, to to get that tactile feedback, you've got to have. I mean, that's a pretty advanced piece of technology to have, depending on how immersive you want to get in it, right? Yeah. Of and, you know, do I just want my hands? Do I want my whole body? Do I, you know? And then, I mean, there's a massive black rabbit hole we could run down of, you know, like how. You know, the beneficence with, you know, juxtaposed to, you know, me sitting in a, a full out tactile suit, you know, what does that do to me mentally? And then being able to, this is just me and Brad knows this. I have, I, I have a foil hat over here. I'll put on sometimes <laughs> of like, you know, once I plug in, cause we've all seen the movies, right? We've seen the matrix. We've seen, you know, all of these different, you know, movies that play into this fact of, you know, inception and all that of, is what we're really experiencing is like me sitting in my home office talking to you two guys. Is this reality, or is this a is this some sort of am I part of some other reality that this is the virtual reality of it, right? And then how, you know, and so when you start, and and I'm un, I'm unwillingly a participant in that to the best of my cognition. But when I then start putting virtual realities into what I believe to be my reality from a psychological standpoint, that line can get blurred real quick, you know, and how do you unplug? And the better we get at it, the more difficult it is to unplug so it, a, right? a matrix within a matrix, Drew. I, right. <laughs> Don't go there. I will put my hat on. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's the, again, to your the conversation we were having earlier, the better you get at it, Right. The, the, the closer what you're doing gets to actual reality. And that's a really awesome thing. And we, to your point, we can use that for lots of good. Right. Like if I can, if you can somehow create a, you know, a medical training platform to where that virtual experience is almost completely identical to what, you know, a surgeon would be cutting on, a, you know, a, 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 a cadaver or a live person. Right. Well, now, my ability to train people, I can, I can train field surgeons in the bush of Africa. Um, and they can, you know, now I've, I've increased the, you know, the potential I've, uh, of, of people's health globally. But at the same time, if I'm plugged into that and you can somehow figure out there's 
many nefarious uses for that. And so balancing that, making sure we're securing it and doing it for good, you know, all, I mean, again, that's why I say that's a black rabbit hole we can run down, but that's the beauty of technology, right? It affords us those things. um, And then we just have to be responsible stewards of it. Correct. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, so for, for you and you kind of hit on it a little bit, I'd be, what what do you feel like is the next? I know you said tactile, but from a a a mass consumable piece, like what's the next tech hardware that you see coming in the virtual space? I mean, is it legitimately like a full out haptic tactile suit, um, or or what? Um, like I said, I think you know I don't want to get too sci fi out there. I, I'm only going to try to speak to what I know is. Yeah. The best you can bring someone that's not physically in an arena, but at their home and relay any feedback they may have to the experience into the physical space, there's a lot we're doing in that right now. Um, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of adding a lot of peripherals onto people um, until you know, like I said, we can get to that place that an Elon Musk is alluding to and things of that. Um, but there's a lot you can do with what's out there now. Um, I'm a big believer that a lot of creativity comes from limitations. So if you kind of limit the sandbox you have, we're, we're, I'm, I'm around some people, not myself, I'm not taking credit for any of this, but I'm around some pretty creative people that are taking existing tech um, and bridging those gaps. That's, that's my approach right now. And it's, you know, seems to be relatively successful, at least on people wanting to um, experiment with those, and we'll learn a lot from them. Um, I think, you know, I, in my opinion, I think, where you blur the line between the virtual and the physical, and you really couldn't tell the difference anymore. I hate saying it that way. Um, that's, I think, where we'll ultimately be headed. Um, but we to do that takes a lot of training and a lot of guidance from users. So VR is not the easiest thing because there's no common language. The way I, you know, when I'm talking to people designing it or students trying to design for it, it's, there's no common language. It's like you got to think of your users as like, this is like showing people how to use a mouse that don't know how to use a mouse. Like we, you know, that day existed back in the seventies and eighties, um, which I recall. Um, and it wasn't like just pick up a mouse and go. Um, and virtual is the same. And my point is to get to these further places, you got to educate the masses on a common language. Um, and that's what I like about, you know, I'm very passionate, very much an evangelist on what I'm working on now. Um, but it really is to give people the tools and the understanding how to use these things. And you're kind of leading, not that people aren't intelligent. It's just you're, you need to know how to use these things when you go in and becomes part of your vocabulary, vernacular and technology. That's, that's why I like using with a lot of things we already have. Um, you're just telling the people to apply them in a different way. Um, so I'm not the best to answer uh, candidly. I'm not the best to answer like what I think the newest hardware will look like. It's more the experience that I'm trying to bridge 
to the new hardware. If that, if that right. Even no, 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 that, that makes perfect sense, especially in the space you're in, right? Because whether it's esports and arenas, that's all, you know, if I'm sitting in the arena, you know, watching, you know, a tournament or whatnot, that's, that's a very particular type of experience versus, you know, right now it's, you know, and I've only, I've only dipped my toe in this water, but, you know, watching those same types of tournaments online right now is a, a vastly different experience and from, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth and maybe you can help clarify, but what you're trying to do is to make those experiences as identical as you can. What I experience at home versus if I were to go down to ESA here in Arlington and see a tournament is identical as we can get. Exactly. Right? And so the same is on the other side, on the physical side, if I go to a physical event and it's not any better than I can get at home, just watching it on Twitch, what's the point? So right. you, those are the things we're looking, not looking at those things that we're working on. So like, let's say you're at an event and you're, you know, you're watching league, you know, you're watching lol uh, specifically mm-hmm. that or, you know, CSGO is another one where you can actually, when you're there in the space, you actually feel like you're in the game, not just a spectator watching on a stage that you can hear those players coming behind you you can do directional positional audio um really cool stuff now once you do that easy enough to just put on a headset and feel like you're somewhere in that stadium um and you can point and you can be positional audio relative to where you would be in the position of the stage um you know those are very doable things that need to be explored um, that's why I say esports is, you know, I love it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm a big critic of what we do well and what we don't do well. And one thing I don't think we do well is, you know, create that. It's very different um, experience and gamers expect it candidly. And it's just very kind of me too sports like. And again, I am a sports fan, but they're just doing what is they're replicating what is already done. And that's fine for now. It has so much further to go. Um, and I think that community um, multitasks very, 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 very well. Um, so mm-hmm. we can not saturate, but we could tax um, or push the envelope of what what an audience expects at, at events. Yeah, I'm curious because you and you brought it up with with live um traditional sports. I don't know if that's a PC, uh, the not esports, the baseball, basketball, football. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll go with traditional sports for that. Um, it, you know, we had Scott McNeely on the podcast, you know, a few episodes back and he even made the mention of, you know, coming out of this whole COVID thing, like we might not be going back to big stadiums completely full with people for, for some time or, or his, his thought was maybe even ever. Right. Um, and I don't think anybody, I, as a sports fan, I don't like the idea of watching a baseball game or a football game on TV with an empty stadium. Uh, Cause that would just so much of what happens in live sports is that ambiance and that, you know, you, you get, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, Yankees Red Sox game and you got some Jack wagon, you know, like screaming at Jeter and what, like that's part of the experience. Yeah. Right. But I'm curious as how much, you know, and, and this is strictly an opinion question, your thoughts that some of what's being done with esports and and the virtual arena kind of thing, how applicable, you know, would that be? You know, I mean, Scott brought up the point of like, maybe, you know, while you're, you're watching the TV and, you know, 
tigers in his backswing, you know, you could yell like, don't shank it, you know, and there's like speakers set up on the, you know, on the, on the, on the, the tee box and net comes out or whatever. But like, how do you, you know, what are your thoughts just, and I'm literally just asking as an opinion, like how do you see some of the technology that's being developed in the esports space? So it's, being, and I'm not, it's being applied is fast and is readily available for that. If NFL, when it comes back, NBA, when it comes back, NHL, when it comes back and some of those sports and baseball is a little bit trickier only because every stadium, no two are alike in the MLB. Um, but you're, you're in my wheelhouse of at least um, potential clients that were proving proof of concept. Like I said, we're, you know, there are some people already kind of in that space. Um, there's going to be others that do it well, better qualitatively, but it's, it's really to bring the fans at home there. Now they're physically, you won't see them, but you should be able to hear them. Um, and then if there's, you know, you could even potentially or upsell, I hate to say it that way. If someone wants to sit behind the dugout and start screaming at the player they hate, um, that may not come out over the general broadcast, but it, it sure as hell could come out on the field during the event. Now, all to be said, I, you know, it's just trying to bridge. I think the players will be the metric here, in my opinion, you know, playing inside an empty stadium is going to suck for the, you know, there's such an energy built, especially at key moments that actually affect the game in the best way. Um, you could do that through audio um, to some degree, but you're not, you know, people are coming up with crazy ideas to put LED screens around and then, you know, your face is sitting there, you know, that just seems so, I don't know, not immersive from a player standpoint, but the audio might be there. Um, and then I would say you're going to be very, they're going to, I'm not saying like, I know I'm saying like things that I would guess from a fan standpoint on questions we may be asked is, you know, you don't want to see a foul ball fly into an empty stadium, clank, 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 with no fans running for the ball like crazy fans that we are. So you, I think camera is going to be very, you know, and I think the XFL did it to some degree. You know, I know those stadiums weren't packed, but you're going to be much more creative about the visuals that you see. But you can get the audience at home into that space um, through audio. Um, now, these are very short-term answers, um, but... That's the way we look at it from gaming um, and bringing stuff that we would from esports or whatever the case may be. And we want to get better in that space. It's just, this has heightened the um, different sectors that need it. Um, you know, they're, they're begging for it. Now there's smaller events, you know, UFC boxing um, that you can literally put on a virtual stage um, just because the arena is, is so small. Um, and then you can fake if you will, the environment around, or you could even make it a little fantasy if they want to go that way during COVID. Now, those are very doable things. Um, those places exist if they want to do those things and then bring the crowd in um, and you can do that. Yeah, I think your barrier to entry with at least professional sports, you know, traditional sports, right, is the, if I'm a if I'm an owner, <laughs> right, I make a a lot, not all, but a lot of my money from the butts in the seats, right? So if I'm making the experience for somebody to sit at home better than, in theory, that's an opinion, and better than to come to my stadium, yeah. somehow, right, you've got to you got to figure out a way to monetize that at-home experience in some way, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not saying that you're not suggesting that, but I think that'll be a creativity point, right? You got to get 
creative with how you, and obviously to your point, you can upsell a lot of that or, or provide options right, yes. from a sale. And again, it, those yeah. things, yeah. I, I think they'll help build long-term better experience. Again, some of these are business driven, short-term, anything. So I don't lose fan base, things of that nature. But, you know, right now I don't have yeah. a crystal ball, but you know, Dodger Stadium, Yankee Stadium, these places that pack every night, nine it, and that's not all of MLB, but that's not an insignificant per game loss, you know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, you know, again, if you can get, you know, if these things bridge on the short, whether short be a year or two years, hopefully not that long for events, um, I think it all helps. It all helps. But I think it might help even in ways we don't, anticipate it I, again i keep saying i think this is accelerating applications and technology um just because the demand is so high um and it's not being replaced um you know i, I i'm not the biggest golf fan but you know i watched tiger and phil and i watched that event over the weekend i did not realize how starved i was for that type of content now it was a good event I don't know how good it was because like I said, I was so starved for something. <laughs> yeah. When you haven't eaten so, for months, that saltine tastes like filet. <laughs> yeah. So I got a few opinions on those things. Cause I watched that too. And I think, you know, Drew to, back to your point of, you know, how do owners get people in the seats of traditional sports? Well, I mean, that's been a battle that's been going on for a while ever since yeah. we've pulled out multiple camera angles and zoomed in angles. And, you know, I think the, the passion of the fan is to get more of that behind the scenes in depth, you know? Yeah. So the Mark, you mentioned, the, that, you yeah. mentioned the, the, the golf match that it was. And to me, part of what made it the most entertaining is you actually get some of that commentary between the players that you would never get on a normal level, but that's something as a fan that we want, you know, like, you know, we're all in Dallas and we can all go to the Cowboy stadium to watch a Cowboys game. But you know, some of the biggest you know, complaints if they're playing a bad team or if it's not going, you end up watching an 80 yard long TV, you know, and you're not getting all the different angles or if, you know, I'm sitting in the nosebleeds, like I can barely tell what number who is, you know? And so, whereas if I stay home and watch it on TV, I get all the different angles. And this is where I think XFL pushed, pushed the envelope. There is you start talking in-game interviews, you know, you've seen golf go to, Hey, we're going to try and get this conversation between a caddy and a player. You've seen baseball go, Hey, here's this, you know, in between inning interview that we're trying to get people insight and access to. And, you know, not that I've watched a lot of esports and a lot of e gaming, but they were on the forefront of, Hey, I can tie into what everybody's saying to everybody and kind of get that experience there. So to me, it's, it's going to be interesting and always has been interesting because you're going to still have your traditional sports fan who, I'd rather watch it, you know, in a stadium or I'd rather, you know, versus on TV. But, you know, to the other point that we brought up earlier is audio makes a big deal. You know, I don't think anybody's ever realized, or if you have, you don't really pay that much attention to it as when you talk about these, you know, pressure games, playoff games, rivalry games, even during a regular season, have you ever noticed that the crowd audio is way higher in those games than it actually is in a normal event? You know, like, and to that point, like, it makes, I know football is, you know, more people like watching football than, you know, baseball and golf and some of those things. But when you actually pay attention to the crowd noise that's pumping through on a traditional football game, like 
we've all been to football games, you know, there's in all sports events, there's an electricity kind of a buzz in the air, but it just seems like when you turn on a football game, it's the middle of the first quarter and it's nothing, nothing, but you're all of a sudden like into a game, whether or not I care about who's playing or not. And you just kind of feel your adrenaline level pop up where, you know, I played baseball. I've been to plenty of baseball stadiums. If I turn on a game in the fourth inning, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like it, it is what it is. Or you have people who flip in a golf tournament, you know, to Mark, to your point of, you know, you may not be the biggest golf fan, but you were so desperate for that content that you chimed into it. And there is, you know, golf to me is the most, easy sport to play without fans because we can all go play golf by ourselves with nobody actually around. In fact, to me, it actually takes out a little bit of that pressure because, you know, having people there, you know, for professional athletes, fans are fans, but they don't have to worry about, Hey, is, is Drew going to yell in the middle of my backswing? Cause he's an idiot, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Whereas, you know, at a, at a traditional basketball, football, baseball, Trust me, I've been called enough bad names in my life from that, that, you know, that that's part of the fan going experience. Um, but to me, it's very interesting because to me, there are some drawbacks to traditional professional sports of, you know, I know, but by the time I buy a ticket, right. And take my family and buy food and parking, you know, sometimes I'm spending north of $500 just for a ticket to sit in the upper deck, you know, when you take in food and parking, all that stuff where, you know, I could pay $15 a month to have an added subscription to get all this live access, which is where you saw MLB TV, the NFL network, you know, NBA TV, all those things coming in. But to me, it's going to be very interesting, you know, from the developer side, if we can actually take and go, you know what, I have this access, I pay for this subscription and, but, you know, Hey, for this particular game, I want to pay $60 and get a VR experience of I'm sitting you know, right behind the the bench of an NBA game, or I'm sitting at the 50 yard line and actually get that immersive experience. To me, it's going to create a big problem for traditional sports in general, if I can get that content there. But on the flip side, I know some owners had previously talked about, and I believe the Oakland A's talked about it almost a decade ago and couldn't get the approval for it, but they were wanting to put iPads in all the premier seats that would basically flip out of your console, like the emergency exit TV screen on an airlines mm -hmm. and actually be able to pull up different camera shots and different in-game stats and some of those things. So to me, it's going to be an interesting battle of which technology wins out and, you know, where you can get people. Yeah. So I, first thing off the react to that, you know, people always want to go to physical events and they always want that camaraderie with other fans. So parking that is always a need. There's other, I think even now, rather than look at, you know, like, Oh, we got to replicate like it was, there's so many opportunities, like you said, content and content is King. And then the other side is to give more accessibility to users, whatever that may be, camera control, different angles, um, you know, and extruding that out and putting it in the hands of users, why not during COVID if we can move that quickly to do some of those things? So it's not just like, oh, I miss not seeing the fans. Now, I'm not talking from a player's perspective, which is a whole nother thing. And I'll mention that here in a second. But for for fans sitting at home, they'd be like, I wasn't able to do this before. And I know they're trying to make it more entertaining and provide more content and accessibility. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, it's not for the purest sports like MLB, especially, you know, hopefully they would entertain such things. Um, 
you know, these are big franchises with a lot of brand building and they don't want to wreck that. You got to be mindful. But if you can give better accessibility into your sport, I'm like, why not? But that's my opinion. Um, but I think that stuff is very monetizable. Um, accessibility. I'm all about accessibility. I'm all about user-created content. I just come from that world um, or that mindset. But I think you can do that in traditional sports. You can do that almost in any form of entertainment, actually. So I think there's opportunity um, during COVID. I'm not, lots of us, you know, lots of people are out there suffering. Lots of companies are suffering. I get it. Lots of people are hurting. Lots of people want to get back. Social distancing is awkward as hell. I understand all that. But I'm just saying, there are other ways to look at some of these things if you have the ability to affect some of these things. Right. And so that, that's where I see opportunity. I don't see opportunity. I don't want opportunity on people's despair. Don't give me, I'm just saying right. these limitations, like I said, make you think of life differently and you can get really creative. Now from a player standpoint, not seeing people and hearing people in positional audio onto a court, let's say use basketball and I can kind of hear, you know, Jack Nicholson talking trash at mid court at Staples. Possible to do that, but you don't see Jack. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying from a player's perspective, who knows? And you have to govern where that audio is coming from as well. You don't want to take a home court and turn it into an away game. Um, for instance, yeah. you know, not just because I mean, Cowboy fans are everywhere. Dodger fans are everywhere. Yankee fans are everywhere. Notre Dame Irish fans are everywhere. <laughs> you you <laughs> could see how something like that, you have to be very mindful of input and traffic. Um, but there's, again, this is all, this is not sci-fi. This is all doable stuff. It's just, We've got to we've got to play and iterate with it. Um, but again, I don't think it's lost. Um, even if COVID, you know, miraculously, thank goodness, if we got a you know, vaccine tomorrow, I think all this stuff just helps uh, entertainment value, user experience value. I'm not placing that great importance on mankind. I'm just saying, I think that's what that's what out of this too because these things aren't going to go away people are going to like oh why aren't we doing that anyways <laughs> kind of thing so right yeah absolutely you know and and you know the thing that i'm i'm two thoughts one is and i, I this i guess is going back to the to the esports side because you obviously can't do this in in live traditional sports but in those you know if i'm if you're in that arena and i've heard this in some i'd love for you to kind of educate us a little bit but how there's either it's starting or there's a movement to where in some, you know, in a tournament and East, whether it's CSGO or, you know, legends or whatever, to where participants may, you know, have the option to vote, to change a part of the map that the tournament's being played on, or, you know, manipulate those types of things. Um, I mean, is, is that something I, I know it's got to, at least there's been talk about it because I've heard about it, but in terms of implementation and then, you know, as a, that's definitely a unique thing. I mean, I equate that as like, you know, the, at a baseball stadium where you could like turn on the wind or like make it start raining in a football game or something like that. And um, I mean, how widespread is that? And, and then the, I'm beyond that. I'm curious about the data that comes with that. We can talk about that. In a sure. 
That's a really good question. Um, technically, that's all very feasible um, and all very doable. Um, you know, some games are easier to manipulate than others. Some may need to be, you know, you may have to recreate some things within a game. But I'll flip it around on the other perspective, which is, you know, you have pro organizations, and I'm not saying they drive the world, but you have pro esports organizations, and these people are training continually um, for certain expected things to happen within their plan. And they're dedicating, you know, for a short period, esports players aren't around because it takes so much mental acuity and dexterity, right? Um, when you're investing like that, and some of these a lot, a lot like investing in the franchise to play some of these games is not cheap investing in players is not cheap building your brand is not cheap my point is you have to balance all these things like you know do you want a football game and people just chart chucking bottles off of players to see if they survive the game or whatever i'm just being extremely crazy right now but no, you're just in Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Or I'm a Dodger fan, so you're in San Francisco, and they're throwing batteries at my players. So, and I, that's a joke. There you or, go. I don't know if that was a joke. Um. So, <laughs> no, those have happened before. So you're spot on. <laughs> so, anyways, my point is, you have to look feasibility. Is it interesting for the fans? Absolutely. Um, the people that are actually competing, because I I do, you know, look at esports as athletes i really really do there is so much training involved with that on so many levels um you have to balance it all um the content versus the players and maybe that becomes its own format for some esports games which is it's just crazy town when you get out there and they have to be prepared for everything and that it may go to that it's interesting it's just the existing very popular esports games are probably going to be a little resistant um, to that. But I think some things that maybe affect the aesthetics that may not affect the core gameplay, um, I'm sure they'll be open to stuff like that. And really all you're getting at is more fan engagement at a more intricate level, right? And I think those are the things yeah, that yeah. you'll see happen in, in esports and traditional sports. Gotcha. Yeah, and then the, the thing, I mean, all of this that we've been talking about from you know, the, the, the traditional sports interactions and, and then all the stuff going on with esports is there's just this massive amount of data that's getting thrown around. Like, and then, especially when you're talking about, you know, in, in virtual reality, right. And if you're, if you're talking about gaming in virtual reality, all of that, you know, the IO that goes on there in terms of, you know, interpreting what I'm doing and how that affects how you perceive things and, uh, that's just, you know, from a data standpoint, I don't, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I have absolutely no clue the volume, but it has to be massive. Um, and then if you're doing that, you know, in terms of cloud versus console gaming, or, or even if like where that's happening in general, those VR interactions that you're, that you're talking about, obviously that data is being processed somewhere. I'm assuming, you know, if it's done, over a, you know, an internet connection, a game that I'm playing on a computer. Um, like, I, I don't even know how, from a latency standpoint, how you pull that off without massive, massive amounts of, of compute and, you know, to, 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 to steal another Scott McNeely as I'm a data ocean out there that's just sitting around, you know, spinning this data up. Yeah. So, 
you know, data is important. Data is important to sponsors. Data is important to a lot of people um, and accessibility to people. Now, um, gaming community is pretty savvy to, you know, don't tap too far into me. They're very leery of that. But you, purely on the gaming standpoint within games, you know, we collect a lot of data and we want to know and predict player behavior. Um, really to satisfy player behavior, player sentiment, um, and getting pretty sophisticated. Now, in in virtual in physical spaces, you're right. It's real time data. You can pull out some. You probably can't go as deep as you want to go. But if you start to infuse virtual elements into the physical, then you can tap real time in into that now obviously that's gonna scale and cap and you're gonna have thresholds to it or you're gonna have to start partitioning out data real time and then figure out what you're gonna do now you can do that but i think that's the interesting bit here is when physical spaces start to exhibit some synthetic um experiences uh then then you can start to extrude out data just purely because now you're you're digitally connected, right? Um, so I, in the the pro sport, uh, sorry, the traditional sports, if you will, baseball, football, etc. Um, you know they'll they'll love that as well. So I'm just saying we're talking about things I think that sure. cross pollinate in in really oh, awesome yeah. ways. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if that answered sure. it, but I you know I just see as you look at. The physical space is doing traditionally what they were doing, harder extrude yeah. data through like ticket purchasing and food F and B purchasing. And but like what are they actually yeah. doing during an event? You know, I think you, we can start to do that purely with them interacting with the event, if that makes sense. Cause once then you do yeah. that, then you can follow button presses, blah, 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 blah. And you know without getting into people's personal lives, but just the behavior of the general audience and stuff like that. I'm a big, I'm a big data fan. I'm a big data, but purely to create better experiences and help sponsors, you know, monetize and without hurting, helping your community. Right. No. And that's exactly what I was, I was driving at from that standpoint of it is, yeah. I mean, and, and I think people, there's a balance in every it's an it's at an individual level of how much how much privacy am I willing to give up to improve the yep. experience that I get right yep. and and everybody has to balance that for themselves and the better you can individually allow people you know yep. if if I'm at a stadium and I have the option like okay you get it all jack but I get you know the bet like this mind blowing experience or I give you a little bit and I get a little bit better experience to allow me as an individual to decide that I think you get, you know, a, a much higher interaction and engagement rate with that type of content and data. hundred percent agree. And it really at the heart of that is trust and then deliver is delivering an expectation and continually delivering high quality on that. And I, I know that sounds, it's not trivial to do that. Um, but it is very it's very good for the people supplying the content and very good for the users. Right. So it's all about trust. And I'm, I'm using this to help your experience be better. And I'm delivering that time in and time out. Right. That has nothing to do with sponsor. That has nothing to do with monetizing on that level, but it sure as heck does when you're providing product or content for people. Right. And that's, 
there's psychology to that as well. But at the heart of what you said, Joe, just that's you're building trust between you and your consumer, you and your user. Um, and you're transparent in that. I think if you're transparent on what you're doing and then you do do that, but trust can be broken in this stuff, as you guys know, instantly. Um, and that's kind of how we bridge sponsors into it too. And the esports as quickly as, you know, I don't, people will trust the sponsor and appreciate the sponsor if they're doing something meaningful for the users at the end of the day, especially in gaming, especially in gaming. Yeah. Well, and I think you're right. You know, we as humans are akin to that kind of trust and really, I mean, think about my, my, my family, my wife and, and my in-laws family, they're Ford people. They only drive Fords and they won't drive anything but a Ford, right? Well, why? Well, because great grandpa worked at a Ford dealership back in 19, whatever, right? And that's the only reason, but they built that trust. And so all we drive is Fords, right? And and I know in the gaming industry, it's, just, you know, that you got cats that they have specific types of peripheral that they only use and there's an affinity for that. So I think it's there, the opportunities there, right? We just, you, to your point, you have to build that. It's a different type of affinity it, it, rather than a product, which I think as humans, we're, we're much more akin to, you know, develop an affinity and a trust with something we can touch and hold and taste and feel. Um, but what you're talking about is an experience and building trust in somebody to consistently deliver an experience for me, which at, at, at its very core experiences are massively dynamic, right? And, and I, I think you would probably know this better than any of the three of us on or Brad and I, having to consistently deliver a, a, an experience at a certain level is much harder, um, you know, from a qualities control standpoint, uh, because I can make sure my Ford drives the same way it's driven for the past 50 years because I just make sure the way we build it and the products we use are the same, right? But with a with a with a an interpersonal experience, there are a, a, an infinite number of factors that go into providing that experience, and a lot of them you don't have any control over, right? Right. So you you just have to control what you control as best as you can, and and beyond that, it's. It is what it yep. is, right? But that's really it. It's that's where the data comes in, though, right? Like that yeah. just helps you intellectually understand what what player sentiment or community sentiment is, what they expect, um, and then you try to meet that best you can at the end of the day. But that at its heart is, and I know you know this as well, is that that's at its heart, which I, at least we use data for. Um, then it provides ancillary value for other people involved um with it so for sure for sure um so mark i know we hit on some stuff that you're working on with a3 i want to make sure that we you know we give enough time i mean are there are there are there other things that that you guys are working on that that um you know that you are are meaningful that you want to talk about discuss um i think we hit a lot i mean so you know where we we the only thing we didn't we go to we have quite a bit of partners and clients that we work with, um, you know, whether we do um, dedicated builds and spaces, we're not, we're not looking to do the same old, same old or land centers or anything like that. It is purely, like I said, to create an experience somewhere where you cannot get at home. That is truly at the heart of what we do. The one thing we didn't mention a little bit is we do, we do work a lot with um, universities um, and we do work with, groups online that are building community in around esports and around video gaming. And we do that. We provide that um, as well. 
Um, but again, on its heart is um, we partner and work with people that um, are not looking to do uh, the same old stuff. And I'm not saying everything has to be new, but it should be better than. Um, that's that's kind of at the heart of what it is. Whether we're working with curriculum partners um, or we're working to build community for people trying to find jobs in the industry, which I'm working with a group doing that um, all via online. Um, but a lot of what we spoke about today, everything we're talking about today is not very different from, from any sector we're in. Um, and then we try to bridge people into like sponsors that don't understand esports. Then we're working on the other side, kind of walking them through the front door into esports and kind of the do's and don'ts and and what works and what doesn't. Um, and then um, we're very agnostic um, towards our partnerships. We're not exclusive. So if if we we're a value add and someone's a value add for us in these endeavors. Um, we, we go about life like that. Um, so, you know, some of those are very symbiotic, almost all of them. And then others look a little disparate, like, how does this make sense in esports? And usually it's bringing something creative or unique. So my little spiel on, on Abacus 3, but um, that's, that's kind of where we're at and what we do. Okay. No, that's, that's great. Um, so if our listeners are interested in connecting with you on social media and, and the work that you guys are doing, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, they can have, they can go to Abacus three, uh, website if they want, or if they want to even know further connect, I can go correct with, uh, me directly. Uh, it's Mark MRK at Abacus three dot GG. Um, and they can connect to me that way. That's probably the easiest, best way. I'm pretty accessible. I kind of try to practice what I preach <laughs> within reason. <laughs> Um, but Very if they good. want, they can go to our website or they can, they can contact me, uh, directly through my email. Okay. Awesome. 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 Well, Mark, I know I speak for, for both of us here and, you know, everybody at the greater TMG core, we really appreciate your time and are grateful that, that you took a lot of time out to talk with us. And, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and I know we'll be in touch, but we're excited to see everything that you're doing at A3 and, you know, see how things progress. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and humbling to talk to you guys as well. So it's awesome. So I appreciate the time and um, the amount of time you gave as well. So it's all good. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. All right, cool. Well, that's going to do it for us here today on The Edge, a TMG Core production. Don't forget to subscribe anywhere you pick up your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review there. You can also find us at www.theedgetmgcore.com. So thanks so much. We'll catch you next time. And remember, The Edge will go as far as you take it. Thanks, Mark. Take care, guys.